American United has a convenient branch right at the VA Medical Center, along with eight other locations across Utah. As a member, our veterans get the best rates on loans and savings products. Learn more at amucu.org. Now is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Dave Young. We had to learn to cooperate with each other because, you know, what the product that you're delivering as a broker is information. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, we want to invite you to get involved in the charity our founders helped start called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the U.S. and globally. The top project you could help with now is in Cusco, Peru. There are 20 girls that the local government rescued but didn't have anywhere to keep them safe, so they put them in jail. The government has said that they're willing to give custody of these kids to the aftercare facility we're helping to expand now once we raise enough money and build an extra building there. To learn more, please click on the Child Rescue tab on our website, which is iCollective.co. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Dave was the managing director at an international shipping firm. He spent 30 years with Ode Marine. He's a Coast Guard Academy graduate and, uh, and a great man altogether. Uh, Dave, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you, Jess. Uh, my career actually was a little longer than that, even 33 years at, at Odin and uh, maybe 36 in total in the shipping industry. Uh, you can't be can't be lopping off those six years. Those are hard yeah, years. No, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've I've been fortunate. I've been a, you know, I worked hard, but a lot of breaks have come my way. Yeah. So um, let's start with uh, let's start with being a guy that are making ships with millions and millions of dollars of cargo move around the world. Um, what, to, what does it mean to be a broker? What, what did you do at Odin? Well, I started out as a broker uh, at Odin in 1982. And uh, I came over to start what is called a, a spot market department, which is just literally moving cargoes from point A to point B around the world with customers like at that time, Mobile and Exxon and uh, Chevron Texaco and oil traders like VTOL and ship owners from around the world. We were a, a marketplace to get deals done. Interesting. So um, what are things that people wouldn't normally think of that, that are challenges in this, you know, working with clients from different countries and all sorts of different industries. Um, what what uh, what are some of the kind of things that have to be overcome in the shipping industry? Well, just just in general, you you hit it on the head. I mean, you're talking to people all around the world. Uh, I, I was you know early on talking to the 
Japanese clients and brokers in the middle of the night uh, and talking to people in France uh, a little bit later in the night uh, and then, you know, talking to your own clients in, in the United States uh, during the day. So when I first started out, it was, it was, I was actually in Los Angeles and uh, I would put in so many hours that by, by Friday, I would just fall asleep and wake up Saturday afternoon. Uh, so <laughs> one of the reasons I moved to the East Coast, honestly, was uh, just to have a, a little more, more of a, you know, a life balance because the- <laughs> get those, get those time zone hours. Back oh yeah. Least. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I, uh, I'll never forget. I fell asleep in my Lamaze class, uh, you know, with my, my first wife and, and, uh, that's that, yeah, literally, that's how tired you would get. But, you know, it's, it, you know, you pay your dues and, and you get an opportunity that, that I think is a, a great career for people. Well, listen, there's a lot of people who work hard in their careers. Uh, what do you credit as the reason that you made it from just having a career to literally being managing director? You know, it, it was an intensity of effort. Uh, you would, I think, um, you know, with your clients, you would literally have to be the guy that that would not rest until you know your client's needs were met and you know i did have that that sort of intensity and i tried to bring that to you know the rest of the people that worked with me uh, you know we would we would literally <clears throat> never never get beat for lack of effort Mm-hmm. Well, and and I'm just going to jump in there because I'm thinking it's more than that. You know, I, I know some of your former clients that you and I have, have gone and met with. Um, they, they really care about you more than just a vendor. Can you tell us about your approach um, as far as the way that you've got these very personal relationships with, with these clients where it's, it's not just about business? Yeah, I think uh, you, you really... What, what I did is, number one, your integrity in a small business. And this, uh, the international shipping business is a relatively small business. And, and your, your uh, word is your bond. And you have to really, really care about your integrity to the point that uh, that, that probably has to be more important than anything, and of course, the relationships with your clients—you do, you do form bonds. I mean, you're talking to these people, uh, you know, sometimes ten hours a day. Uh, so you do develop friendships and relationships. And uh, again, it, it goes back to what I said earlier. You, you literally would never want to. Uh, let down a family member or friend it, it, it got to be the same thing with your clients you would uh, hmm. you would take that sort of a degree of effort to keep your to keep your clients happy 
Well, and and I I imagine there are times that emotions run high when you just think about the scale of the things. Like, if you were going to put just a guesstimate, how much do you think the value of the most expensive cargo ship you ever booked was? Like, what what kind of dollar volumes could that sh- shipment be worth? Well, for? when the price of oil was a hundred dollars, put it this, uh, you know, it, it was a lot more than it is now at thirty seven or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you're talking millions and millions of dollars and, you know, per shipment. And now the the price of a of a very large crew carrier, which is referred to as a VLCC, is now over a hundred million dollars. And and you know, twenty, thirty years ago it, it might have been Fifteen million dollars. So you know, the the numbers have gone way up. Uh, the element, the transportation cost has always, in general, been relatively a smaller part of the total uh, the cost of of moving the cargo. But we t- we have incredibly. Uh, uh, wide-ranging markets in shipping where, where you know, it's not a, uh, it, it can it can change literally from minute to minute, uh, day to day, week to week, where, where things can be very volatile. Uh, and of course, we went through a, a, a long period, uh, you know, sort of after the uh, financial crisis meltdown, where we're everything just kind of tanked and uh, the market wasn't volatile, but, you know, we're back at least in the, uh, the crude oil and the chemicals and, and the vegetable oil mar- markets, we're in a much more volatile market now. And that, that's one I wouldn't have guessed when you say the vegetable market is more volatile. Why is that? Well, it's just, you know, you have, uh, you certainly have, certain supply and demand. If you're talking vegetable oils, that's probably, you know, uh, one of my colleagues is, is one of the best vegetable oil brokers in the world and uh, <laughs> former colleagues, I have to say, uh, one of the best in the world. And his, the thing he always liked to say is, well, people got to eat. <laughs> so you're, you're always going to have, a, you know, maybe a more steady market in, 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 in something like a food product than you, than you would in, uh, than you would in crude oil where you have different, uh, factors and different forms of energy that come into play. Uh, but in, in, in the particular field, uh, of vegetable oil, it's fairly steady and it's the ships that move, uh, vegetable oil, are for the most part uh, ships that also can carry clean petroleum products and certain types of clean petroleum products. Not every, you know, uh, every product is a cargo that you could clean up for in order to carry vegetable oil. Hmm. Um, You know, I'm thinking about your career and I know that the Coast Guard Academy had a big influence on you. And those are, those are relationships that have stood the test of time. You still, you're always on a plane, go 
seeing these guys golfing in Texas or whatever you're doing. Um, talk to us about why you think the Coast Guard Academy was a unique experience for you. Well, you know, it, it's, well, number one, it's sort of baptism by fire. I mean, we all went there in 1969. <clears throat> Some of us, like myself, had absolutely no idea about the Coast Guard or about the uh, marine transportation or any of the things that we were getting into or, or had a very uh, shallow uh, knowledge. So you're thrown in there and you're put in basically your first year as a boot camp. They, we called it, uh, they call it swab summer. And uh, you just, when you're put in a situation with, with uh, classmates like that, you get to uh, get some lifelong friends. And, and we, <clears throat> those of us that made it through the four years, uh, it's pretty incredible. We have like a, a reunion every five years that, you know, a pretty solid core of uh, my classmates go to. And, and literally, uh, I would say almost a third to a half of the class shows up every five years, which is, uh, yeah, it's a special thing. Well, I know that it, like, as we've talked, you know, it sure feels like, you know, in addition to anything you learned in your family, that it just, it reinforced, um, I don't know, like the habits of integrity and the, those kind of things. Is that accurate? Oh, I'd say it's very accurate. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, growing up in Northern Idaho and, and, uh, having a mother who, <laughs> thank God for me, uh, decided not to become a nun. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we had a, a pretty solid, uh, background. I feel in ethics, just, just, you know, it was, it was something ingrained into us, but the Coast Guard Academy, I think he even put it further. Uh, it's, it's like, it, it really becomes a part of you, you know? Like a self-image almost. Yeah, too. it's it's it it really is. I mean, I remember when I first got out of the Coast Guard, I was, uh, you know, you're you're obligated after you graduate to have a five-year uh, minimum service, and so basically, you you know, you come out as an O3 or a lieutenant in the Coast Guard if you get out after five years. <clears throat> and I remember going to you know get into the shipping world and get into negotiations and have to basically be a broker and be a marketplace where, you know, the, the, the background in the Coast Guard was, well, you tell them everything. And, and of course, in uh, the shipping world, you don't tell them everything. It, it, you know, you become, you know, you become a horse trader to some degree, so you can't, and, and I remember struggling with, you know, well, how do I feel? What do I feel comfortable? How can I do this? And how can I never, never feel that I've, I've uh, told a lie, et cetera. So it's, it does make you, uh, you know, grapple with your, your own, your own values and what's, what's important. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Now, it was an interesting process. No, <laughs> sure. Um, now I know you were there 
playing basketball and you guys would go play, you know, against schools like MIT or whatever. Uh, how did that affect your coursework or your ability to, to get done is p- playing the college ball plus trying to get everything done there? Well, honestly, it was such a relief, especially my first year there, to, to be able to get out of the academy because you have to, uh, to give you a feeling for it. it. It felt literally like for the first year, it felt to some degree like you were in prison <laughs> because you couldn't, you couldn't leave. It was at that time all male. Uh, your first year, you had very, very few opportunities for uh, liberty, we called it, you know, time away from the academy. And so being on a team was great and being able to leave the academy and visit MIT or, you know, Maine or New Hampshire or Vermont schools, it was awesome just just to be able to to have that and uh and, and and you would make time you would study on the bus or you'd you know you you would do whatever you had to do cuz that that was such a a great opportunity uh to get some feeling for what the real world was doing versus what was going on in your little uh environment at the interesting yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking about when you're managing director of your own firm there with all the, you know, everyone else. And a lot of times we're talking to guests about innovation and marketing and leadership. Um, in a, in the shipping world, with it being a small community, um, how much of it was marketing? Or how did you think about getting the word out or establishing the reputation as a whole firm rather than just Dave Young? Well, it, 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 it really was important that your firm was thought of as, you know, number one, uh, high integrity, uh, number two, and, and that could also become number one on occasion, it, just, just your ability to perform. Uh, so we did have to get out and market uh, our, our work and, and all, also a lot of it is as I said, it's a small, it's a small community. Uh, it was word of mouth, uh, but you know, with the major oil companies, you would have to uh, qualify to be on their panels of, of their panel of brokers, and so you, you know, they would rate you on things like, you know, professionalism, uh, integrity, all those things. So. We were constantly being vetted, but, you know, just in general, uh, it was important to, to, for the reputation of the firm to, to have a group of people that, you know, would, would, uh, stand the test of time as far as their integrity and their, and their abilities. Hmm. Um, so what did that look like in the firm? I'm thinking, you know, over the course of 36 years, there's definitely times when team members probably were not living up to that promise and their hard discussions have to be had. And how, how would you approach those times when, you know, maybe there's a team member that needs to, to live up to that reputation more? How, how, how would you, what would you tell yourself going into that or what kind of a system or approach did you take? Well, we would have uh, semi-annual and, and annual reviews 
and where, where you know you would sit down with your colleagues or the people that were your direct reports and just go over the years go over uh you know go go o over everything that we've just talked and and literally would uh have a discussion on everything from uh productivity to uh challenge they're, that they're having with the accounts, et cetera. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I got involved in towards the end of my career, because a, a lot of, a lot of the brokerage, uh, firm business is not that much different than a group of real estate salesmen. I mean, in, in a way we were all salesmen and, uh, we had to learn to cooperate with each other because, you know, what the product that you're delivering as a broker is information. And so if you have a group of people that are sharing information with each other, your, your brand becomes that much better with your clients because you can, you can provide real time information that, that helps them do their job. So it, 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 you know, it required a lot of cooperation with your colleagues and, and it's not a real hierarchy, uh, as a broker, I didn't have a, you know, even, even though I was a managing director solely, and then a co-managing director for part of the last 10 years, we didn't have our own little office. We didn't have a corner office. We were right on the trading table. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, Big yeah, I mean, you were going, you know, put it this way. If you, you look at it, your, your soldiers going into battle, we're all going into battle, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder. There wasn't, uh, you know, the general sitting back saying, okay, guys go this way and go that way. We're all, we're all rolling up our sleeves and and doing work and, and sharing information. So it was a very flat, you know, uh, hierarchy in that, in that instance. Yeah. You know, um, thinking about decisions, you know, that, that make the difference over time, um, obviously starting off on the West coast and coming to the East coast. Um, when you think about, your choice of where you, where you decided to come in Connecticut. Um, what advice do you have for people who are trying to start something, whether it's a charity or a business or whatever about, you know, being in the kind of location where things are getting done? Like, and maybe you can talk about the size of the maritime industry right there in Stanford. And, you know, probably a lot of people don't know the role Connecticut plays. Yeah. Well, originally when I first got in this business in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties, um, most of the brokerage firms were in New York city. Uh, the big shipping centers at that time were London, New York, Paris, uh, where else? Hamburg, Singapore, but in Tokyo. Uh, but what happened in the United States over time in this, is most of the brokerage firms moved from uh, New York uh, to Connecticut. Uh, some moved to New Jersey, a few moved to Long Island, but 
by and large, uh, the majority of the uh, brokerage community in the New York area now is in Connecticut. And it's also, I, I mentioned earlier, I was a broker in Los Angeles. There were a couple brokerage firms out there, but fairly small. Uh, again, one or two in Houston. And uh, Houston has developed more brokerage firms over the years, but it's Connecticut sort of is the biggest area, biggest concentration of brokers, followed by, say, Houston, and then uh, the West Coast, really, the, the time difference just kills the West Coast to be able to compete uh, as a center. Well, and I'm just thinking, you know, I know about the different associations you're part of and how you, you know, have actively involved yourself in the community where the other, other potential customers are. Was that, um, I mean, how intentional was that and how much of that was because... That's just where the work happened to be. Well, the, the work, what has happened really is there's many ship owners in the, in the uh, New York, Connecticut area. The, uh, the oil companies, for the most part, have moved to Texas. I mean, so to some degree, if you're going to get into this business, honestly, I would advise people to consider uh, Houston as being a place where the where the bids, business, if you're talking spot market business, it's where it's originating, because the uh, you know people even like Exxon Mobil that had uh, Exxon and Mobil were in the New York New Jersey area, then they moved to Fairfax Virginia, and now within this past year they've moved to, you know, north of Houston, uh, shells down there, uh, chevrons down there. Uh, so to some degree, there's always going to be brokerage firms here as well, but to some degree, if you were just starting out in this particular business, cost of living, everything else considered, uh, I, I would have to say Houston, at least for the tanker business, not necessarily dry cargo, but for the tanker business, uh, you would have to take a hard look at, at Houston. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thinking about the, the business world in general, you know, obviously your, your route to business ownership there was not two guys in a garage with an idea. You, you worked your way up to, um, and it seems like an industry as mach as mature as shipping would have a lot of constants, but um, over the decades, I mean, what, what kind of innovation did you see or, or what kind of opportunities did you guys spot and try to iterate and, and, and um, you know, get into opportunities as they presented themselves? Like what, what did that look like in the shipping industry over those decades? Well, in the, in the eighties, it literally, we were, we were actually even using telex machines, you know, where you would have the, you know, the original ticker tape <laughs> that comes from, and, and you would put messages together and God forbid you stepped on the uh, tape because you'd have to splice it together. I mean, literally that's how, how, how it was in the early eighties. Uh, of course you had telephones 
not nearly as good as they are now, but when you put together a message that needed or, or you know, they call it a recap when, you, when you've done a deal and that's called a fixture, but it's basically a deal, then you, you uh, recap or recapitulate the negotiation and in a, in a uh, at that time in a telex form and send it out. That's how, that, that's literally how, how it seems like uh, so ancient now, but then things changed and, and uh, you know, you got into faxes. Wow. Faxes. That was amazing. You know, we used to think, <laughs> wow, people can send faxes. That's awesome. And then of course, after that, you, this whole, this whole thing of that, that we have today with the emails that can be sent and, and everything that it's, it's just changed dramatically. And in the old days, everybody had, uh, uh, charter parties, which were a final, uh, contract that was written and had to be signed by both parties. And that's changed where people literally, uh, a, a recap is done in the form of an email. Both parties look at it and, and you can require a charter party to be written, but 95% of it now is, uh, and you know, I don't have that number exactly, but I'm, I'm guessing a huge percent of it now is just emails are sent out, no objections. This is, this is the basis of the, uh, the contract for tankers. So my question there is with the, you know, obviously those communication forms uh, changing and speeding up and stuff like this, did it change the nature of the business or was it just that the sales uh, were more efficient? Did you, did you find yourselves providing different information because, hey, they already knew this from the internet, so the value of the broker became that? Or, or did it stay pretty much constant just the way you went around it? No, it changed it. It changed it. Uh, you know, at the beginning, it was literally get on the telephone, have some valuable information to give. And then of course they were dealing with other people. So you'd, you'd get off the telephone cause you'd, you know, people were very busy, uh, to the point now where people are on Instagrams or, uh, instant message. People are, 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 are typing little blurbs of information, uh, you know, at, with market changes, continuously to their, to their clients. So it's, and of course you do don't want to lose sight of, of, of getting on the phone and talking and keeping the relationship going. But a lot of people nowadays just want to hear what, you know, give, give me the market information and little blurbs, uh, over the internet and, uh, you know, once or twice a day, you'll actually sit down and have a real conversation. So it's, it's really remarkably changed in that regard. So when you think about, um, when you think about this idea of the world changing, you know, communications continue to change, technology changes. Um, what advice do you have for business owners or entrepreneurs today, as far as, um, you know, when, when something new would come out, how quickly you guys would adopt it. What, what advice do you have for people looking forward based on, you know, most businesses statistically 90% of them don't last five years. 
And so for you guys to be around for decades, you know, I'm guessing you didn't jump on every fad, but I'm also guessing that you didn't get left in the dust yeah, either. And, and I, we, we started in 1976 and the company's still going, you know, I retired a couple of years ago. Uh, and you're right. We didn't always, you know, we weren't always the forefront of every innovation. And, and what I, what I think in retrospect, looking back is you don't necessarily want to be the first one, uh, in, in a lot of instances, because, you know, we, we did a lot of work, um, you know, in different aspects where, you know, you, you can also be ahead of your time. <laughs> and if, and if you're, That's not yeah, so profitable, you can huh? be ahead of your time. Uh, quantitative analysis. Uh, we did a lot of work in quantitative analysis, and I thought the I thought uh, the material was incredibly remarkable, and you know just what what you could do with it was uh, phenomenal. But you know, I think in that particular instance was an example when we got ahead of our time with the uh, you know the, the the customers really weren't as interested in that. And, and that's, I guess a lesson learned there is just knowing, knowing what your customers want and giving them that versus thinking, well, this is what they want. <laughs> you know, hmm. so I, I, I was guilty of that a few times for sure. But in general, yeah, you couldn't be, you know, you couldn't be the, the shop that just absolutely was back in the stone age, uh, you, you had to adjust and improve, but, uh, can't remember who said it recently, but I, you know, one of the, one of the, the companies that I, I was reading about, you know, they're talking about, you don't necessarily want to be the first one, you know, sit back and see where things are going. And then you have a better, maybe a better feel and, and less expenditure of, of your capital to, uh, to get the company in, in the, the direction you want it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up reading. I remember uh, a decade and a half ago, somebody said some catchy little thing that stuck with me saying that not, not everyone who reads is a leader, not all readers are leaders, but everyone who leads is a reader, all, but all leaders are readers. Um, you know, you and I, obviously, big fans of the Arbinger Institute, how we met, um, big fans of their books. Any other books that you think entrepreneurs or innovators or business owners these days should be reading? Well, you know, I, I this, this, uh, I'm actually in the middle of a book that somebody gave me that I, I'm really loving it. And it's sort of Arbinger-like. It's called The Power of Habit. I don't know if you've read that by... Is that uh, yeah. Charles Duhigg? And it's, it's, you know, I get excited when, you know, just, just like you, I am a reader and, and I, and I, I get excited about new ideas and applications. Arbinger, of course, is certainly, uh, something that we both shared, but, uh, yeah, this, this book is awesome. Uh, there's a book, uh, that I tried to read and reread every year while I was working, I, I got to get back and get read it again. And it's, 
It's a book called Being Happy by Andrew Matthews. And it literally, hmm. it, it just kept, you know, kind of setting, uh, you know, sort of a reset book for me. Cause I would, you know, you go through life and you're, when you're working 12 hour days and you're, you know, sometimes feeling like you barely have time to, to think when maybe you'd, you have more time than you think. I'd sit down and I'd read this book and it would just kind of be like a reset button. And, uh, you know, the whole thing about uh, blame and guilt and all those uh, really just wasted time and emotions that uh, people can get caught up in. So, you know, that was sort of my go-to book, but, you know, not many people no, it's literally, it's 132 pages, and the guy's a cartoonist, so he's got these great cartoons in it. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.